You're listening to episode 35 of the Creative Strings podcast, and our special guest today is the one, the only, Jean-Luc Ponty. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Strings podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. I'm so excited to share this interview with Jean-Luc Pani. There's really not a lot I can say. I mean, Jean-Luc is a tremendous, generous, kind, thoughtful person, and he's been a massive inspiration to me throughout my career. I'm just really honored that he gave me his time and he was willing to sit down and share. And I hope that you're going to get as much out of this interview as I did. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy this interview with Jean-Luc Ponty. I'll just launch into it if that's okay for you. Yes. Okay. Go ahead. Um, so, so yeah, I'm really curious because I understand that you were classically trained, a very serious classical uh, violinist from an early age, and both your parents were uh, musicians. And so, I was curious uh, how you developed an approach to to learn jazz. It was really by accident. Um, I also had learned um, to play clarinet as a third instrument. Piano was my second instrument. I had chosen violin uh, as my main instrument uh, because I felt it was the most expressive of all. But I also loved playing clarinet. And uh, that's how I started playing jazz uh, with a uh, non-professional student band in Paris. Uh, They were not even professional musicians. they were studying something else, I don't know, some type of university, but they had a jazz band and in the Benny Goodman style, and they were looking for a clarinet player. So even though I knew nothing about jazz, I uh, volunteered. I said, uh, well, I'd like to do it. So I went and uh, they they realized I knew nothing about jazz, but they played me some melodies, some standards, you know, like, oh, hi, the moon. And I was immediately able to improvise on it. So they said, okay, you you know nothing about jazz, but you have a good ear, so uh, we hire you. So (laughs) that's how how I started. So I started learning uh, all the jazz standards of the time. Uh, And that was in the late 50s, early 60s. So, you know, from all the Broadway musicals, uh, all the jazz standards uh, from traditional jazz. But it was just a hobby. 
my main focus was still to keep studying classical music at the conservatory in Paris on violin. And I, I didn't, it didn't come to my mind that uh, to play jazz on violin yet. Until one day, um, I wanted to go jam, but I didn't have my clarinet, only my violin. And uh, I decided to jam anyway. And <laughs> that was uh, a revelation to me, and the audience liked it. The band liked it. The, the, the band who let me jam, they were very surprised. And uh, that's how the idea of uh, playing jazz on violin um, started in my mind. And at the time, I, I, I had even heard, heard of Stefan Grappelli yet. So that was very strange, but he was at a low in his career and not very visible on the scene in France. So that's how, that's how I eventually switched to violin. Wow. And how old were you then? Uh, I guess I was uh, 16, 17. If you like the Creative Strings podcast, there's a good chance that you will love the podcast by Electric Violin Shop, one of our sponsors. Their podcast is called Rockstar Violinist. Simply search for Rockstar Violinist on anywhere that you listen to podcasts. And are, are there specific advantages that you think you may have gotten from playing the clarinet in terms of articulation on the, the violin? Probably, because once I switched to violin, I, I you know, I, I was thinking like a, as like a wind player, like a horn player, but maybe it's, the, the influence really came more from uh, the fact that I was listening to albums a lot. Uh, once, once, once I switched to violin, my passion for jazz uh, grew a lot, especially when I discovered the modern jazz of, uh, of the time, uh, which was uh, Miles Davis quintet. Uh, John Coltrane had just left Miles Davis and started his own band. And I saw him in concert in Paris. I think it was his second concert. And I was so... Uh, for, once I 
developed that passion for jazz, I would start playing uh, vinyl records and as soon as I would drink coffee in the morning and and then try to jam with those and, and then at night go jam in jazz clubs because at the time there were uh, several jazz clubs in Paris and it was possible to go to go jam uh, with some of those bands. So uh, once I discovered modern jazz, I, listen, I, I was listening to the pianist as well and learning that rhythmic phrasing from horn players and piano players and transferring that to violin since as much as I admired Grappelli, uh, he was not really a bebop or modern player and therefore I had no example from any violinist. Well, I'm, I'm so interested that you brought that up about Grappelli because I, I, was, I was curious about how you see the or how you would talk about the difference between like a European approach to jazz and American approach to jazz, or if, or if you noticed a difference back then uh, in the 50s, in the late 50s. Well, the main difference was, uh, of course, someone like Stéphane and uh, the Hot Club de France, they had uh, put together with Django Reinhardt, which was uh, definitely uh, <laughs> an original way to... Uh, uh, to use their European uh, background for Django, it was a gypsy uh, style of music from Europe, and uh, uh, a bit a bit the same for Stefan. And uh, I, but at least also the European tradition of the violin with the vibrato and all that. And uh, it it was it was a departure. Uh, a bebop was a real departure from that, uh, and. Uh, I was hearing the difference and could tell that I couldn't just adapt um, the, the, the violin to jazz this way, uh, to, to, to modern jazz. That didn't make it, especially for the vibrato, but also some slides and some other details. Um, so that's why I took example from horn player, trumpet players, and, and uh, but also piano player, because you know, I was a big fan of, uh, I love Red Garland, Bill Evans, and uh, Oscar Peterson. And, uh, and the thing is, when I discovered Stuff Smith, he was really, it, it really spoke to me, his way of playing, really, that, that's what I like doing. In other words, adapting the violin to jazz as opposed to the other way around uh, mm. you know wow that's a great i've never heard it put that way that's that's brilliant well <laughs> um <laughs> did you when did you first hear stuff smith play or do you remember um uh, early after i did that very first jam on the violin because um the, the, the leader of the jazz band who had allowed me to do that German violin, <laughs> uh, had, he had liked my playing. And so he started talking to me, invited me the next day. And uh, he's the one who, uh, who told me about uh, the existing jazz violinist at the time. So Stefan Grappelli, of course, Ray Nance with Duke Ellington, um, and some who had passed away already. Um, of course, Giovinuti, um, and uh, and he mentioned Stuff Smith. Oh, it's so long ago. Perhaps I went to a record store after that to buy some, to find some albums 
by jazz violinist. And uh, the guy in the store uh, recommended that album. It was a solo album by Stuff Smith, and he had Oscar Peterson on piano, uh, Ray Brown on bass, and I forgot the drummer, maybe Alvin Starter. But that was a big revelation to me because the way he was punching on the violin, uh, like a tr trumpet player, you know, there was that type of attack, uh, rhythmic accents. And uh, although, again, I could not, I could not copy exactly what he was doing because I, I was mostly listening to Miles and Coltrane, but um, it, I, I guess it um, inspired me and um, encouraged me to go that route of, mm. of, of definitely forgetting about the traditional techniques on the violin and just adapting the instrument to what was needed to play jazz. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and in fact, what, what's funny, because um, I started playing jazz on violin before I, I left the conservatory, before I got my last diploma. And when I, at first, when I entered the conservatory, my classical violin teacher told me I had a great bow for Mozart. <laughs> Three years later, he said, what happened? What happened? <laughs> because <laughs> I started punching, you know, by the big attacks. <laughs> and uh, so I was no, no longer great for Mozart. <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever do you ever uh, bring back some of those uh, classical bow techniques or other classical esque 
you know, techniques? Uh, do you ever feel any reason to do that or, or, or not? Yes, I did, but uh, mostly when I moved to uh, jazz rock, you know, mm. when I played with rock bands, like with Frank Zappa, and, um, and on even rhythms as opposed to swing and uh, triplet feel, then yes, uh, I felt that after all, the technical uh, studies I had done were a good basis, a, a good foundation for to to maybe use it a bit differently, but at least uh, it was a great uh, start. And I could apply, I could indeed apply some of the staccato or some of uh, the fast bowing uh, techniques. Uh, some of it, in, yeah, I found a place for it later on. But again, not so much in traditional jazz, but when I moved to other styles of music. And, I, and I, I could only imagine that when you started focusing on playing jazz on the violin or, as you said, adapting the violin to jazz music, jazz articulation, um, that you were focused on also internalizing the harmony, learning the melodic language, as opposed to practicing just technique on the violin. I'm curious how that might have changed your practice, or maybe I'm wrong about that. No, you, you, you're right. Um, that's what it is. Uh, jazz is about or improvising in general, whether it's on jazz or something else. It's a theory. And uh, the same theory that applies to every instrument. So, indeed, uh, you, you need to have that technical foundation uh, and forget about it somehow and focus on, on harmonies. Yes, uh, that's what it is about, improvising new melodies, new lines, variations. And, um, you know, maybe one of, uh, one of the clues uh, why I was so attracted by jazz and improvisation is, in fact, my early goal in life was to become a composer mm. and conductor, orchestra conductor. Uh, more than uh, more than the violin, I didn't have a, violin was not my main passion. Uh, it was music in general, and uh, it, I was too young to go into classes of, uh, for composition at the conservatory. So I had to do an instrument first. But I started uh, learning uh, harmony. I took two years. Um, and preparatory classes uh, before then eventually going into composition class, but which I never did because I <laughs> I deviated toward jazz before that. Mm. But maybe that what uh, I had this mind, you know, of uh, uh, searching about harmonic possibilities on different chords and, and all that. So... Yeah, that was what I was aiming at. It's wow. And, and it sounds like early on, I presume that early on, you must have spent some time thinking about, as you said, the bow arm, sort of like, well, how can I change the bow arm to make this articulation or to play fast lines in an improvised context? Is there any specific things that, that you would mention about, about the right arm? Well, um it's so long ago, so it's hard to yeah, tell. Okay. But, uh, as, <laughs> yeah. far, as far as I remember, um, I did not really uh, 
But it's by listening to horn players again and piano players, I could hear that there were some notes were accentuated, you know, louder than others. And there were, the other were, there were some ghost notes. Mm-hmm. And I got quickly into that, into uh, uh, bowing more more notes than I would actually play, mm. and doing a few ghost notes so that it would give some more relief, uh, rhythmic uh, uh, accents. Uh, I guess it's, again, in those days, there were no jazz schools. Um, and uh, so it was by listening to jazz records, playing along with those albums, that I would uh, imitate the, the phrasing of the horn players, of Miles Davis on trumpet, for instance. Um, so I came up with that really, um, I, I never got such an analytic, sorry, analytical mind. Uh, I played a lot by um, with spontaneity, just um, inspiration like that, the the way it came. Uh, You know, not really say, okay, I should do uh, two tight notes and there and there. No, it just uh, by instinct, I I tried to play. Uh, Amazing. And and did you ever imitate your own clarinet playing on the violin? Like kind not, of, not really. No, not really. Creative Strings podcast is supported by Yamaha. Creative string players depend on Yamaha. Yamaha's support of this podcast is just one of the many ways that they support music education and musicians. I'm grateful to have had their support for over 20 years, and I highly endorse their entire string line. Basses, cellos, violas, violins, electric, and acoustic. And if you look for Support Ed online, you can subscribe to Yamaha's free quarterly magazine for music educators. So it might have just happened uh, sort of organically, I suppose. <laughs> yes. Yeah. But, but again, because it, in my mind, when I was playing, I was at, at, at the beginning, not forever, but at the beginning, it was like uh, I was uh, thinking I was a trumpet player. I, had, mm. I was uh, citating uh, a trumpet. Wow. Okay. <laughs> wow. And, and that's why I was... Uh, I was trying to hear that straight sound without vibro, like uh, like Miles, for instance, or Coltrane. 
I never wrote down solos though. I, f I felt, um, I don't know why, but I felt improvisation that it was, was the most important, which meant that you have to do your own mm. uh, creation. But uh, it's the sound, the style, the aesthetic, uh, closer to Baroque music in terms of uh, vibrato for, for us as string instruments than uh, traditional classical music or gypsy or, you know. So for me, it was something that appealed to it. it it was right for my personality also. My, the, the way I felt was, uh, I felt a lot of affinity with that approach to music. Uh, I would say classical Indian music to when I discovered that music uh, with straight bowing, no vibrato, you know, very long notes. Uh, I felt very, um, appeal, uh, it was very appealing to me. Mm. And so I guess, a lot of people, well, myself, I w when I was first introduced to your music, it was some of your music from the 70s, and it was a long time before I even realized that you were a masterful bebop and modern jazz player, as demonstrated on your early albums prior to the 70s. And I'm just curious as to how that all evolved for you so for example you were a classical musician and then you became a masterful bebop and modern jazz player and then you went into these what people have described as fusion such as ma vishnu and, and zappa and chikoria and and then some of your own original music in the 70s i'm curious how you how you thought about that was it like a conscious decision to not continue playing swing or straight ahead or was it just what you were hearing and you wanted to do your own original music that's a great question and it's i think the answer is it, it was a combination of both because what happened after playing straight ahead jazz for seven years uh i also had the desire to compose which was still there in me and but what i was writing did not fit the bebop style or modern jazz. Uh, it was uh, odd numbers of bars of measures. <laughs> Unlike in those days, I'm talking about late 50s, 60s, uh, it was pretty rare that a jazz musician from uh, traditional jazz would write a lot of uh, original pieces. It started soon after. Um, but so, I felt very a little odd after seven years of playing straight straight ahead jazz that I could not it, it, my music my composition didn't really fit that style and so I was a little shy to write uh, new uh, original pieces uh, for my jazz recordings and also I felt that uh, it was a bit limiting uh, on the instrument for the, for the violin in particular to stick to that style only. And uh, then, uh, by destiny, I got to meet uh, Frank Zappa and uh, recorded, you know, we did that first recording and then he invited me to join his band. And uh, he was a perfect example of someone who didn't care about tradition and whether his music would fit in in any category of music, he would uh, he would make a synthesis uh, 
of elements from uh, even classical music, in fact, as well as uh, jazz, as well as R&B and everything. And, and, and I said, that's it. I should just write my own music hmm. and uh, whatever style that's going to be is going to define my music. That's it. Hmm. Uh, uh, suddenly, you, you know, I, it helped me um, to uh, get rid of um, that tradition that was felt heavy on my shoulders. Hmm. So, um, and, and also the playing. Then I was able to introduce more. The, the, the jazz experience was very important and still there. I can tell uh, when I see these uh, live concerts with uh, Frank and Mahavishnu in the early 70s, I can tell that I was still, uh, I still had that uh, jazz style which I had in Europe uh, when I was playing uh, avant-garde jazz just before moving to America. It was, it was still there, but I could add, as you mentioned earlier, I could incorporate more um, style of Boeing's coming from my classical background, for instance, yes, or some new ideas, whatever, would fit uh, these modern styles of music. And so what uh, critics, because it's never musicians who put categories on their music, or rarely, or rarely, but um, it's a critic who started to call this music jazz rock, you know, in the, in the early, late 60s, early 70s. And uh, anyway, the combination of style, that, what, what happened to me is to be able to write a piece that was uh, a bit similar to uh, structures in classical music, like a concerto or I wouldn't say a whole symphony, but at least longer pieces than just a five-minute song uh, that was uh, uh, used in more popular music in those days. So um, I felt liberated and able to use my skills as a composer uh, in the, thanks to this combination of uh, jazz, rock, and other elements. Later on, you know, it could be other rhythmic influences. But uh, at least uh, I, I was able to, um, to play, to use the music I felt in me, and as a composer, I was mostly influenced by my my youth, which means um, European classical music, and for the most part, uh, the impressionists. You know, Debussy, Ravel, Stravinsky, Bela, uh, Bartok, and Messiaen. Uh, I was big fans of their music, and that was that, these were my my influences as a composer. Even though, again, I never studied acad academically. And as a composer, I'm more like a self-taught.
amazing to hear you mention those influences. And, and, and when I think about some of those early uh, recordings and I think about the textures, I wouldn't have made that connection, but when I hear you mention it, it's so obvious, you know, all the, all the beautiful texture in the yes. production of, of your, of your work and the, and the attention to sound and, and yeah, you know, that's, exactly. Wow. Wow. Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's where it came from because, uh, in a way, I was I was dreaming to to have a symphony orchestra, which I could not afford. So, but but at the same time, there were all these new instruments being invented: uh, synthesizers, you know, electric organ, all that. And so, I used these uh, indeed um, uh, to 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 have these uh, backgrounds um, mixed with sections open to improvisation. Well, it strikes me that that your, your like your life work is is so much the way people think of you. It's it's hard to separate your voice as a composer and as a player. So you, you know you you composed and your own music, and you were the lead player on that and a band leader. So it, it sort of became an extension of your voice. But at the same time, you were, you were an avid classical violinist and an avid straight ahead violinist and a multi-instrumentalist i'm curious if you would still enjoy you know playing a, a set of straight ahead music with a straight ahead band or if that sort of just took over and you just only would derive satisfaction from you know in that context as a composer playing your own music or do you feel in any way fragmented like you like to do these different things at different times uh, at this stage in my life, and even a few years back, I started to um, enjoy doing, indeed, other projects on the side. Um, still, my own music being my main focus, and keeping, you know, touring and recording my own music with my own band, but doing uh, side projects where, uh, yeah, it would take me into other adventures and uh, like the trio we did with uh, Stanley Clark and Aldi Miola in the 90s, the Rite of Strings. But lately, uh, a few years ago, in uh, 2015 and 2016, well, in 2014, I did one album with a, a gypsy French guitarist, jazz guitarist, Birelli Lagrand, who is really a, an amazing, a, a modern version of Django Reinhardt for me. And uh, and Stanley Clark on double bass, and I played an acoustic violin, uh, the whole album, and we played a few standards. We played uh, blues by Coltrane, uh, and uh, an old uh, melody uh, from Broadway musical, uh, and and a few originals. So yes, I enjoy going going back to that, and uh, it's challenging. It's there is nothing worse than routine. Uh, for me and uh, as a musician, uh, it's no good. So uh, it's great to be challenged and do other projects like that. Well, one thing that strikes me is is how important possibly it was for you to have a sense of direction or integration in terms of composing your own music. And I wonder if that's a if that's a lesson for other young musicians. In terms of, I mean, there's probably a lot of musicians who are trying to play jazz, but if they're not composing their own music, will they feel that something's missing? Like you said, like there was a weight that was lifted. 
um, from being free to not only pursue playing straight ahead jazz. Do you think that it would help other people if they were to focus more on composition versus, or yeah, I'm just curious what you think about that. Uh, I, hmm, I never thought about that, but uh, what I noticed is that uh, there are different sorts of talents. Wow. Uh, and uh, I, I've seen in the jazz community some incredible improvisers, uh, fantastic uh, at improvising and not necessarily composers. They Sometimes they, they don't even write new pieces. Um, maybe it's a different kind of talent. I don't know. And then you have people like Theronius Monk, you know, their compositions uh, indeed are such a strong mark, uh, so different from anything else that uh, uh, that's what made them so uh, so interesting and, and so successful. So for young people who have that desire and feel they like to compose, yes, I would say it's important because I see there are, there are excellent young musicians now in, in the jazz world or, and all over the world. And uh, I've seen here in Europe, for instance, uh, uh, Tigran or Tigran. He's uh, from Armenia. And uh, he is a fantastic jazz pianist just playing straight ahead jazz. But he also uh, writes his own music uh, with this uh, some influence from his uh, um a background, Armenian background, and which which makes for some very original music and profound. He really feels it. I think that the most important thing is to to do either improvise or play or compose uh, when you really. F it, it's something that comes from deep within you, and not thinking of. Uh, copying someone else or mm. reproducing something that has already been done. Mm. So, so to be able to have a voice of your own, whether or not it's expressed through composition or improvisation, it sounds like. I, yes. If, if you stick to improvisation, if a young person is not so interested by composing, at least it is, it is always, to me, it is always important to, to find uh, your own original uh, something different that's what improvisation is about and that's what makes it interesting I also want to thank our sponsors at Electric Violin Shop. I really want to thank my friends at Electric Violin Shop. 
for all their support. And, you know, they really are my go-to resource for everything related to electric strings. If you have any questions about going electric, about accessories, about amplification effects, pickups, whatever it might be, I highly recommend you call Electric Violin Shop. Their phone number is on their website. If you go to electricviolinshop.com forward slash creative strings, that'll let them know that I sent you. Now, of course, I grew up at a time when uh, all the first big innovators in jazz were alive, and uh, they were the ones who made uh, big revolutions to our ears all over the world. You know, it was when people, I remember Charlie Mingus played in Paris for the first time, people could be, it was such a shock, such energy. Um, and then I saw Telonius Monk in concerts a few times, John Coltrane, uh, Miles Davis. So uh, the lesson I learned from these innovators is that it was important to find your own, to create your own voice. Beautiful. You know, one thing I've noticed is, is that, I mean, you were like almost out there alone with just a handful of, of other improvising violinists it seems and maybe in the last 10 or 20 years there seems to be more and more interest like growing among classical string players in general and or I'm curious if you would agree with that but also what do you think about the this kind of separation or is there a separation between classical classical music and other types of music well, there was, uh, there is less and less. I can, I can see that the young generation of classical players are a lot more open and interested by modern styles of music. Um, some of them all the way to wanting to, to learn how to play jazz. You know, I received uh, some, some questions about that from young players and how how can I start improvising and and such questions? So uh, it, it's quite different from when I started. <laughs> I was I was wondering. In fact, I felt rather lonely. And uh, as you say, except for a few, there were Don Sugar Kane Harris, who was a great player um, in the R and B style. Uh, Jerry Goodman. Um, more in a classical rock style. Uh, but in modern jazz, I felt lonely, you know, very lonely. Yeah. So after, and, and even in the fusion movement, uh, jazz rock years called fusion later on, um, I, I started to wonder if I was, it was so crazy <laughs> that nobody else wanted to get into it. But now younger generations are very interested. Very interested. I was. I was. It's quite a change, you know. Uh, I have seen even well-known classical uh, 
violinist, uh, concert players, uh, whom I made to uh, wish they could do like me, improvise. <laughs> so, uh, but what, what I tell them is they don't necessarily have to do jazz improvisation. Improvisation can also, they can do it in classical music. Mm-hmm. Uh, it used to be this way, right? Uh, in past centuries, uh, when there was a violin concerto like Beethoven, there was a cadenza in the, in the middle where uh, uh, the soloist would improvise. And that has been lost with, you know, with later generations. And uh, then everybody started playing the, only the version by high fets, for instance. <laughs> and, and, only, uh, and now it's standard. And when you play Beethoven concerto or Mozart, the cadenzas are, uh, in fact, were created by uh, well-known uh, classical players, uh, Valanisto, and only, only organ players in classical music, only uh, like church organ, are mm. the only ones who keep improvising and learning improvisation. And uh, once I was with Vadim Repin in a festival in Poland, uh, we were several violinists uh, representing different styles of music, and he was the one representing classical music. And he was so eager to improvise, he asked me if I could, you know, show him how. <laughs> so in three days, I said it's a bit short, but, and so, but. I explain again, like we said at first, it's theory, you know, you have a chord and then you have to check what scale, what notes will fit on that chord and then move on to the next chord. And and so I I told him this very basic principle and he tried to slide um, a bit in the jazz way. I said, forget it, you're not going to become a jazz violinist in three days. (laughs) So, but think of Mozart or Bach. We take a, a, a simple triad and chord and see what notes you can, the scale that fit on that. And he was able, after three days, to, to do his, an improvised solo in his classical style. And now he does, uh, in his encores, he does an improvisation. You know, he gives a few notes to the, the orchestra behind him. And so, just to say that, uh, I like that. I like to encourage people to improvise, and it doesn't necessarily have to be jazz. Well, and it seems like you're a great example of that in the sense of of having really claimed your own voice as a composer and as an improviser. You know, even even after mastering jazz in many ways, like you know, you you had the courage, I guess, or the the confidence to decide you wanted to make this sound or that sound, which, which is an amazing example to everybody, I think. Well, thanks for the compliment, but uh, that's it. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, that, it, it, that's what it takes. It, it's tough to be different, though, sometimes. You get a lot of criticism, you know, uh, at first. Uh, but that's why I, I feel lucky to be still alive today because it's a, such a reward for me to see very young Varanis come to me and, and uh, they want to follow my example somehow. You know, I mean, it's, it's encouraging them to, 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 to go that way and, and try to do it their own way.
Creative Strings is a nonprofit with a mission to support music education. We do that through professional development workshops, through online curriculum, through residencies and outreach in schools, and through this podcast. Do you still, uh, in, do you ever play classical music or do you enjoy, um, would you enjoy playing classical music for fun? Or? I do for fun at home, yes. Um, I, I don't have to prove to the world and go public. <laughs> but, uh, but also, I guess I would have to stop playing my music or stop playing jazz for maybe six months uh, to to get the correct uh, bowing technique again, you know. <laughs> uh, so, no, I love music in general. I love classical music, and, and I love listening to great classical concert players. Uh, and I play a bit of bar sonatas and Paganini, maybe, or once in a while I go dig some of the old books, uh, music books I have in, in my closet and uh, play concerto I studied in my youth for fun. That's it. Uh, because uh, also because it no the, the, the only benefit I would say uh, and mostly studies like uh, Sefcik, Shradik, Dant uh, is that it makes me play lines I would not necessarily play when with my music or when I improvise wow that's that, that really surprises me it makes a lot of sense but it's a you you can find language melodic language within the etudes the etude books amazing i love that yeah exactly because then when you are improvising on your music or in jazz uh you know the the difficulty with the instrument is to suddenly when you you, you have a spontaneous melody in your mind some notes that come up and you to play them instantly never practiced them before obviously it's improvisation and the difficulty is sometimes to uh, go from one string to the other which position to choose as opposed to another one you know for where you're going to go next <laughs> so um and and so i i would say that uh, keeping um practicing these uh, some of these difficult studies make me uh i'm more ready when i improvise wow yeah for the left hand i would say the left hand yeah wow because uh, then the, the bow it's something else you know right, it, <laughs> right, it, right, it, right. <laughs> <laughs> well i'm curious I'm, i presume that when you were young you had an attitude about touring the world and you know um sort of a dream about being an artist, a, a touring artist, a, a performer. And I'm wondering if that changed over, over time, if the experience of being on the road, if it, if it continued to hold char that charm or that excitement for you, or if it ever got really tiring. And then also how that affected you as a parent, uh, in terms of, you know, would you wish upon your children <laughs> to, would you advise them to pursue a c career in music, you know, knowing everything that you know now? You know, I'm just curious about that. Yeah, that's a, well, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, I, I'm still very excited to play. It's a passion, of course. Music is our passion. So um, I feel good when I have my instruments in my arm. Uh, would it be only 15 minutes 
but every day. But going on the road, you're right, uh, it becomes kind of grueling after all these years. Um, you know, airports, hotels. Um, it's not as much fun as it used to be. It becomes grueling. So what keeps me going is uh, it's such an interesting experience to, to share your vibrations with with, uh, with an audience. Um, that's something that uh, keeps me going. But I'm considering semi-retirement right now, uh, for sure. I, I'm slowing down touring a lot because it, it comes to a point where it's too much. And, and you're right, I have a family and I want also to be more present for them. Because I, when I was younger, when I moved to America, I was uh, around 30 years old and my career started uh, taking off. I was on the road all the time, uh, coming home after three months uh, for a couple of weeks and going out again. And uh, I didn't expect that, in fact. To tell you the truth, um, I didn't know that <laughs> that would be what I would be doing uh, so much touring and uh, it's not it's tough for my, for the children you have you know I must say they suffer a bit from it and I try to be in fact after touring for uh, let me think uh, seven years no no uh, I started my band seventy five uh, five years I took a one year sabbatical year. Uh, no gig, not not a single concert, to be home with my children and my wife. And uh, well, at the same time, it gave me uh, the occasion to write a lot of music. Uh, you know, I was not inactive musically. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's true that uh, it's, it's a choice. It, it's a choice. I encourage you to go to Christian House dot com forward slash education you can learn about all the things that we provide especially right now we've got creative strings workshops approaching in several cities these include lincoln nebraska dallas texas toronto canada Asheville, north carolina and our flagship in columbus ohio the first week of july it's a summit where string players from all around the world and many generations come together to get inspired to connect to learn. I would love to connect with you personally at one of these workshops. So I want to encourage you to go to my website, christianhouse.com forward slash education, or just search for Creative Strings Workshop to learn more about the different opportunities that are coming. Or feel free to reach out to me at chris at christianhouse.com. People talk a lot about how the, the industry has changed but I'm wondering if if you really believe the if fundamentally that the music business has changed, and if there's anything, I mean, you just you just made a great point, which is it's a choice, you know. But if there's anything else that you would advise musicians in terms of how they navigate the business or the career as a musician? Ah, uh, yes, it's completely different from when I started for sure, and uh, in fact. Uh, I started uh, when it was barely a business yet uh, in the music business was not so much of a business and so but uh, 
record companies, radio stations, were all directed by, uh, managed by uh, uh, music fans, sometimes musicians themselves, um, who um, maybe felt they, you know, they, they prefer to be on, on the business side maybe, but uh, at least they had a great respect for artists, especially uh, those who were innovators, innovating, experimenting. So artists were leading uh, the, the music world at the, just for a few years when I arrived and it changed fairly quickly because there was so much money to be made um, with, uh, you know, especially in the pop world, but record companies, radio stations. So it, it changed quickly. And uh, I was lucky to start to build up my, my, my fan base uh, before it changed. And thanks to that, I, st I still have fan base today, but for young people to, to start, it's totally different. I, had, I, I didn't have to care about the business side of, of it at all. All I had to do is uh, record an album, give it to the record company, and then they would do everything, the marketing, promotion, all I had to do is few interviews, and that's it. All I had to really focus on was music. Nowadays, it's totally different. I have a daughter who is a musician as well, and um, a pianist, singer, composer, and um, uh, she also had a bit of a chance in the, the early uh, late 90s, early 2000s, but now she has to be as much involved with uh, the business side of it as, as music. And nowadays, you know, it's um, through uh, social media, internet. So nothing is totally positive or negative. It's a bit of both all the time. You know, it's not that it was so easy to, to be successful when I started either. It was also kind of a poker game, you know, but if you had a chance to have a recording contract and that you, your music would appeal to, uh, to, to an audience, then that was it. Uh, you know, you, nowadays, through internet, you can have a chance to be discovered, but uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, I, I'm seeing from afar, um, you know, I'm, I'm not so much into it. I must say I hired young young people to, <laughs> to, to take care of that, of a Facebook page for me to, because uh, I finally realized that it's, uh, you know, it's very necessary to, to make people aware that you still exist, that you still play and still <laughs> doing shows, you know. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Well, I just only had, I think I have just one more question, uh, if you don't mind, which is, which is that I'm just curious, because you've had so many experiences collaborating and living in America, and also being a European, you moved back to uh, France at some point. I'm curious if there's anything that... that uh, you've noticed or if you feel like it's been enriching to you to have these different perspectives or are they different really at all between Americans and Europeans? Well, they were uh, not so much anymore. Mm. Uh, um, I didn't move back to Europe um, 
completely. I, uh, let's say that after I moved to America in 1973 to Los Angeles, uh, I I was mostly in America for about 25 years, only going to France or Europe on tour or visiting my family. Uh, but then, because, you know, what? in those days, without internet, you had to be somewhere geographically to, to be really uh, in the middle of, uh, of things happening. And, yeah. uh, and it was America in those days, in the 60s, in the 70s, being in New York for jazz or Los Angeles, was, there was a lot of happening. You know, it was kind of a contrast because, of course, there was already uh, the movie industry and TV. So uh, some uh, rangers moved to that city to make money writing uh, film music. But on the other side, there, were, there was a jazz community whom I met uh San Francisco and Los Angeles and uh and artists like Zappa who were totally off the wall you know uh and and it was very different to be with them to be in the middle of that uh of that community of musicians talking together listening to each other uh there was a stimulation to explore and to adopt uh even if you're a jazz player, to adopt the new sounds, the new electric instruments being invented, effects, so forth, uh, rock rhythms, you know, and uh, and this and that. And it was it was happening differently in Europe. You had like a movement in England, the British uh, sound, you know, the progressive rock bands, uh, and and so it was very different. In Paris, I was, uh, in fact, one of the reasons why I was uh, so inspired to play jazz is because there was quite a, there was quite a community of uh, of Afro American musicians who had moved to Paris because jazz was, uh, uh, you know, a popular uh, music here, and uh, so uh, I you could go to a jazz club in Paris and hear uh, great American jazz musicians. So it was kind of a, Paris was special, but it was not like that all over Europe. But then uh, in the late 80s, I discovered that there was uh, the, the scene in London and Paris that changed with a, a lot of um, African musicians who had moved uh, there. And uh, that's what uh, intrigued me. Uh, so I met some, uh, that's why I came back to Paris uh, to, 
to meet and uh, jam with uh, these African musicians. Because I had always been interested by uh, all types of music, <coughs> whether it was uh, Tibetan monks or uh, African music. But in, in the 50s, 60s, when I was young, it was mostly tribal African music, people who had gone in villages recording pygmies. Or, but uh, I was curious to discover a younger generation of modern African musicians who played the same instruments as us, electric guitar, bass, you know. And so there, there was a dynamic, and there is still in Paris, um, of uh, it's quite, quite an international meeting place of styles of music you don't, you don't see as much in, in America. It's a little different. However, there is, uh, thanks to internet, uh, young people can discover jazz or American style of music being invented in California or somewhere else. And, and they, can, they can discover it through internet, which was not possible before. Which is why now there is uh, less difference in playing. Maybe mm. you know, young jazz musicians in Europe sound like young Americans. Right. Wow. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And actually, it, it hadn't occurred to me um, but it sounds like there is um, a connection to African music in Europe, but it's it's different in a way because it's it's more connected directly to Africa, uh, I guess, uh, to Africa to African musicians that live in Africa that maybe are living in Paris or London, whereas in but the United United States, there's more of a there's an African American tradition. Which is different because they they have been, yeah, they, they they are Americans. They have been there for for a few centuries now, uh, as opposed to the the African musicians I'm talking about, were born and grew up in their native countries, uh, and then moved to Paris uh, when they were matured. And uh, uh, but the thing is. Uh, they have grown up, that's what I found out, by meeting these young musicians. They, they, they even in their Africa, West African mostly, uh, countries like Cameroon, um, Senegal, etc. They grew up listening to American music too, um, jazz, but also R&B. And so they have, a, 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 their musical background is a mix of their native rhythms, which are very rich. And modern music yeah oh. well um i i just want to thank you for taking time to share with me it's inc it's an incredible honor for me uh for you to to make time for this and uh really i'm sort of at a loss of words for just how <laughs> to how to, no, how to I, yeah. well you're welcome i'm i'm you know it, it makes a big difference to talk to someone like you, it's 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 not the it's interesting for me because you you're yourself a great violinist, and so the question you ask are very pertinent, and uh, sometimes some questions I've never been asked before. So it's <laughs> it's it's even interesting for me to 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 go uh, find this uh, try to be more analytic analytical. <laughs> <laughs> about my about my own background so i thank you i thank you as well for that
Well, I and I just need to acknowledge you. I mean, I was going to say I'm a little bit of at a loss for words for how to do it, but just to acknowledge you for being such a huge inspiration to me, um, and not only as an artist but as a as a person, and being such a a huge inspiration to our community, you know, of of musicians everywhere. Um, oh, that's just, nice of you to say. Thank you very much. Well, Jean Luc. Um, Thanks, man. Yeah, I can't thank you enough. there you have it i hope you got as much out of that interview as i did it was really an honor for me to connect with sean luke in that interview and to hear him talk um, about a lot of things that i think he may not have shared in other interviews i hope that you enjoyed it and if you like the creative strings podcast i want to ask you to consider sharing the episode with your friends leave a review and reach out to me if you have any suggestions for topics or guests that you'd like for me to bring on in upcoming episodes. Again, at Creative Strings, we are looking to build this community and support community around music education and string playing, string teaching in general. So I'd love to hear from you. Feel free to reach out to me at chris at christianhouse.com. Also make sure to check out the YouTube channel where we put up a lot of fresh videos. If you go to christianhouse.com, you can learn about upcoming Creative Strings workshops, you can learn about online curriculum, or explore the possibility of bringing Creative Strings to your school. And once again, I want to thank our sponsors, Yamaha and Electric Violin Shop. Their support helps make it possible for us to invest in the production and try to make these these stories, these um, these interviews, to try to bring them to you in the best way possible. Thanks a lot, and I'll see you next time.